This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. It's one of the sad paradoxes of the Christian Church, my dear friends, that so many of its fundamental doctrines are found to be at variance with the clear teaching of the Bible. To take one simple and current example, the vast majority of clergy and a large majority of laity in the Church of England are desirous of ordaining women to what they deem to be their priesthood. And not only to the role of parish priests, but also, in the church's estimation, to the more elevated rank of bishop. Now, it's true that during recent decades, society in general has experienced a strong move towards what is termed the emancipation of women and their appointment to roles from which they had often hitherto been excluded. But whatever may be the current fashion in society at large, to extend such concepts to the Christian church runs counter to all that is laid down in the Bible. The Apostle Paul was one of the great exponents of the Christian faith. Indeed, he was a man appointed by the risen Christ to preach his message of salvation uh, to the Gentiles. And not only so, but he was also taught the fullness of that gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The doctrine and practice laid down by the Apostle Paul for the Christian church, which came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, enshrined in it the fundamental principle that although men and women are equal in the sight of God in regard to both discipleship and salvation there is to be a clear distinction between the sexes within the organization of the church and thus Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men she is to keep silent And if Paul was taught the fullness of the gospel by the risen Christ, then it did clearly not spring from prejudice or custom, but from the requirements of the founder of the faith. The New Testament, like the Old, is the inspired word of God. It was not created to reflect current fashion, but was God's revelation of himself and his purpose, his principles and his ordinances for man. All scripture, we read, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version this afternoon. It thus ill behoves any who claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ to turn their back upon his words, to set them at naught, or to carry favor with the fashions of the present day. And yet that is exactly what is happening in the church. 
And what is happening in the church today mirrors what took place in respect to its teaching about the nature and person of the Lord Jesus Christ many centuries ago. The most contentious issue that faced the church in the 3rd to the 5th centuries AD related to this very important question about the nature and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that he was the most important man ever to have lived is very clear from the pages of Scripture. For he's not only central to the whole purpose of God, but has been central to that purpose from the very beginning. Again, it's the Apostle Paul who makes this very clear in the first chapter of his letter to the Colossians. You don't need to turn this up, I'll just read it to you. But Paul there in Colossians 1 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, in view of those words of the Apostle Paul, I think we can see how vitally important it is for us to understand exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, there can be no doubt that he spoke of himself on numerous occasions as the Son of God. There are many examples to choose from, but his words to his enemies as recorded by John in uh, his 10th chapter, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, say all that is needful. John chapter 10, verse 36. This is what Jesus said to his enemies. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, there Jesus makes a very clear claim to be the Son of God. He speaks of God as his Father. The Father who sent him into the world to accomplish the work that he was doing, who consecrated him for that work, and who gave him power to do mighty miracles so as to demonstrate God's authority in him to do all with whom he came into contact. And what Jesus says of himself accords perfectly with what the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he told her that she had been chosen to become the mother of God's Son. If we go to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 1 and at verse 30, this is what we read. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. 
The angel, that's Gabriel, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, it's not without significance that Luke was the only Gentile to make a contribution to the Scriptures. That he was a man of great learning and that he had been trained as a physician. When he makes reference to the subject of conception and birth, therefore, we may be sure that he knew what he was talking about. Therefore, we uh, must read those words in exactly the sense that they are given. And there he records the gentle and very tactful words of the angel most carefully. Why would Jesus be the Son of God? Because the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, would overshadow Mary to give her conception. And so the Son to be born would be a union between the human and the divine. And thus, when Mark commenced his gospel record, he opened it with these words. He said, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. After Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, we read that John, John the Baptist, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When Jesus visited the village of Bethany after the death of Lazarus, he was met by Martha. Martha deeply saddened that the Lord had not arrived in time to heal her beloved brother. But uh, Jesus says this to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. When Jesus had taken his twelve disciples to the distant town of Caesarea Philippi, 
he asked them an important question. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's just a, a small part of the very compelling evidence about the Bible's assertion that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the next question we have to ask ourselves is this. Why was it necessary in the divine purpose for Jesus to be the Son of God? Why was his divine origin of such importance? There are a number of reasons set out for us in Scripture, but prime among them is the need for him to fulfill the role of the Redeemer of fallen mankind. Now when our first parents succumbed to temptation in Eden they became sinful and in consequence mortal. Sin and death entered the world and reigned in their mortal bodies. And it was their sinful mortal nature that they have handed down to all their progeny. If God did not take action, this was how mankind would continue in perpetuity. And we're only too well aware, aren't we, of the havoc and misery that man's sinfulness has caused in the earth in every generation. But it was not God's purpose that such a situation should continue. His purpose in creation was that the earth should redound to his honor and glory and be filled with righteousness and peace and eternal life. And so it was essential for mankind to be redeemed from sin and death. But how was the redemption of mankind from sin and death to be accomplished? In the opening chapter of John's Gospel, we read how John the Baptist referred to the role of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 29. There, John 1 verse 29, we read, The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him. It was after his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And he returned to John. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the purpose of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the earth was to take away the sin of the world. To redeem man from sin and death. And the Jewish people had been prepared over many centuries for the appearance of this great one in the purpose of God. 
One of Israel's great prophets was the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we read a great deal about the redemptive work of the coming Redeemer. Isaiah chapter 53, commencing at verse 3, we read these very important words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? It's a powerful very powerful chapter chapter 53 of Isaiah and did you notice how many times in that short passage Isaiah makes reference to transgression and iniquity those are just alternative terms for sin and did you notice how he describes the divine method by which God's people will be redeemed from sin he says of the coming redeemer he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So he would bear them as does a beast of burden. He was wounded for our transgressions. So the bearing of sin would cause physical pain. He was bruised for our iniquities so the bearing of sin would leave its indelible mark upon him upon him was the chastisement that made us whole so the bearing of sin would be comparable to a form of punishment with his stripes we are healed so only through his physical suffering bruising and chastisement would God's people find their healing and their redemption from sin and death all we like sheep have gone astray, says Isaiah, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was not his own sin, but the sin of mankind that he bore in his redemptive work. And finally, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So his redemptive work would lead not only to his physical mistreatment, but to his death. 
his being cut off out of the land of the living. All this was to be the cost of human redemption. Now this was not the only foreshadowing of God's redemptive work that the Jews received. They had been prepared at an even earlier stage for the concept of the sin offering, the method by which in the divine purpose atonement and redemption would be achieved. It was an integral part of the law given by God to Israel at Mount Sinai after they had been brought out of bondage in Egypt that in the spring of every year they should remember their redemption in the feast of Passover and then in the autumn of every year they had to remember their need for the forgiveness of sins and this they did in the ritual of the atonement now regarding the latter I'll just read you a short passage in the third book in the Bible the Old Testament Leviticus chapter 16 just a small passage and in Leviticus 16 and verse 29 we read these words it shall be a statute to you that in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins you shall be clean before the Lord it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves and it is a statute forever and on that day a sin offering was to be made for the whole nation and its blood was taken into the divine presence in the sanctuary and this rite had to be performed every year and it was through this ritual that the nation was prepared for the coming redeemer of whom Isaiah would write some 800 years later the redeemer who should remove sin forever through the once for all sacrifice of himself but those who were careful readers of scripture would also see in all these things a fulfillment of the words that were uttered in Eden which first proclaimed God's purpose of removing sin from the earth in Eden the serpent had been instrumental in introducing sin into the world through the fall of our first parents and the ultimate removal of sin from the earth was heralded in God's words which uh, he addressed to the serpent you don't need to uh, turn this passage up but it's in Genesis chapter 3 and uh, beginning at verse 14 and these are the words of God addressed to the serpent because you have done this, cursed are you above all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In those words, we see that all that was represented by the serpent was to be conquered and its power destroyed but in so doing the one designated as the seed of the woman the promised redeemer would suffer also but from a wound in the heel a wound of only temporary duration indeed it was figuratively 
through the act of stamping on the serpent's head that the Redeemer's heel would be bruised. The very act of redemption would be the cause of his suffering. This was the first foreshadowing of the conquest of sin, later expanded through the sin offerings of the law and then in much greater detail in Isaiah 53. But why did the Redeemer have to be the Son of God? Quite simply because no man was capable of destroying the power of sin which is endemic in human flesh. It required one whom God had made strong for himself. The Lord Jesus was the Son of God. God was his Father and thus he drew half of his genetic makeup from his Father. That gave him the potential to achieve true righteousness and true holiness and to mirror the character of his father. For only thus could he conquer the sin-stricken nature which is endemic in man. But he would conquer only if he were willing to undertake that onerous duty. For that conquest entailed a hard battle and great suffering. And it entailed a hard battle and great suffering because the Lord Jesus Christ was not only Son of God but also Son of Man. He was a unique union of the divine and the human. Had he been wholly divine he would not have had any battle to fight at all for the nature that is wholly divine is wholly perfect unaffected by temptation. As the Apostle James tells us, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's in the human frame that sin is endemic, and that's confirmed by the Lord Jesus himself. He said this of our human nature, he said, what comes out of a man is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, evil, slander, pride, foolishness, all these Evil things come from within, and they defile a man. And those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself about our human nature. The battle that the Lord Jesus Christ had to undertake was the battle with that very sin-stricken, erring human nature with which we are all so familiar. And it was through Mary that Jesus inherited these mortal consequences of Adam's transgression. It was essential for Jesus to have our mortal human nature in order that he might be able to do battle with temptation. He could only overcome sin by possessing the nature that we have. This flesh that is prone to sin and then by remaining sinless in spite of it. He could only overcome sin by beating it into subjection within himself. That's the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ achieved. 
A victory that was completed when he laid down his perfect life in sacrificial death. For when on the third day he was raised to newness of life, that old nature had gone. And God will now accept his perfect victory on behalf of all men. God will accept that perfect sacrifice of his son on behalf of all those who in acknowledgement of their need will associate themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and baptism. And this truth is confirmed by the inspired words of the writer to the Hebrews. And that's why I asked our president to read to us some words from Hebrews chapter 2. Because these are very important and powerful words. Hebrews chapter 2 and at verse 9. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, which is God, in bringing many sons to glory, which is the purpose of God, should make the pioneer of their salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering those verses tell us that Jesus was made and we've seen from the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary that he was made by the power of God overshadowing his mother Mary that Jesus was made lower than the angels and he was so created that in his life he might experience our human nature and so have the opportunity to undertake the battle with sin. And so the writer continues in verse 14 like this. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature. So just as we are human, made of flesh and blood, Jesus also was made of the same nature. And why? So that through death, that's his own death, so that through death he might destroy him who, or better, that which has the power of death, that is the devil. And that's just another name for sin, the evil propensities in the human heart. Thus Jesus was made like every other human being for this very purpose, that he might have the opportunity of overcoming and conquering sin, and thereby of destroying death, firstly for himself, and then for all those who would belong to him. And so the Hebrews writer continues in verse 17 of this second chapter. He says, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make expiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered, and being tempted he is able to help those who are tempted so Jesus was made like us and tempted like us so that now that he is exalted to God's right hand he can through his personal understanding of the problems of human existence help all who are similarly tempted 
But the writer doesn't just leave it there. For two chapters later, he hammers this same point home again. If you're in Hebrews 2, just move forward to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and at verse 14 tells us this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, the Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted, yet Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. God cannot sin. Jesus could have sinned if he had wished to. But thankfully he was able to resist the temptation and remain sinless. And the Hebrews writer takes the matter even further in the next chapter. Hebrews chapter 5 and at verse 17. Hebrews 5 verse 17, this is what we read there. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard for his godly fear although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered so being the son of God and having to overcome the temptations endemic in human flesh every day of his life and having to submit himself to death on the cross was an excruciating experience for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only were there strong crying and tears but there was great mental and physical suffering to be endured. The lessons born by all these uh, passages are that Jesus was a human being born of flesh and blood and mortal he was tempted to sin tempted at all points as we are although he remained sinless he could and did indeed die although God raised him from the dead he was the son of God conceived by the power of God and possessed of genetic characteristics from his father which gave him the willpower and the strength of mind to resist temptation and sin now it has always been difficult to comprehend with our finite mind and then to express through the inadequate medium of human language the merging of the divine and the human in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and there have been those who felt that to concentrate on his humanity was to demean him but the words of the original creed of the early church, known as the Apostles' Creed, are clear and simple. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. During the third to the 5th centuries AD, the church gradually turned its back upon the concept that Jesus began 
his physical existence as a man as described so clearly in the first chapter of Luke's gospel and in the end it developed the concept that Jesus was not the son of God at all but rather God himself God the son an eternal part of a triune God who put off his immortality to become a mortal such a concept destroys the wonder of his unique accomplishment for it was only because he was born a man that he could genuinely do battle with sin and it was only because of his unique conception that he drew from his father the potential to gain the victory over sin should he undertake the challenge only one who bore our human nature could do battle with sin and only one with divine attributes could conquer sin having laid down his perfect life as a perfect sin offering he was raised to immortality by his father as the firstborn of God's new creation to sit at God's right hand until the time comes for him to return to earth to raise to eternal life all who through the ages have sought to serve the God of heaven we hope you enjoyed that talk for more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Christadelphians.org.uk.